0: Welcome to Depolarize, the podcast where we try and use both reason and empathy to build bridges between the left and the right. Keeping with my two episodes per week until election series, here's an episode on what is probably the hottest topic this year, at least when it comes to voters of faith. I just need to acknowledge right now that this is two men talking about women, their choices and their bodies, or even if you're highly conservative, what's going on inside their bodies, not ours and that this is something that we will never have to go through. Now to all the women listening and anyone who leans or is adamantly pro-choice, women have not historically been treated equally to men in this country, and in my opinion they still are not. For instance, recent defenses of Trump's bragging about sexually assaulting women by the religious right, leaders who speak for some portion of a supposedly pro-life voting bloc, lay bare the fact that some of these leaders seem to deny or be unaware that being grabbed in the genitals or kissed without consent is in fact sexual assault, and that this is an actual moral problem. I don't know to what extent pro-life language has been used to hurt women's rights and their welfare, but these recent examples make me pretty confident that it has happened. That having been said, we're going to attempt to have a balanced conversation about this incredibly difficult topic. And I ask that any women listening, please hit me up on Twitter or on the Facebook discussion page and let me know how I can improve on this in the future. Also, please know that this is only the first of many episodes on abortion and that future episodes will feature both women and pro-choice guests. So to my pro-life listeners, you'll get your own heartfelt disclaimer when I have pro-choice guests on. In other words, by the end of this, maybe everybody will hate me. Lastly, Matthew is a Christian ethicist, so there will be a lot of religious talk on this episode. If that isn't your thing, that's totally okay. Feel free to skip an episode, but you might consider sticking around to see how people of faith navigate their own issues of polarization. Okay, I am here with Matthew Lee Anderson, who is a Christian ethicist and writer. We are going to assume for the sake of discussion, a pro-life stance. If you're pro-choice, I don't think that that means you should tune out, though, because, in fact, this is what depolarization is all about. The best thing would be for you to hear someone with whom you disagree on a major issue, but you might find that you actually agree on some other issues. In this case, you might agree that we don't want to elect Trump, or there might be something even deeper that you agree with Matthew on, and that's the whole point. So that would be beautiful. That's building bridges. So please stick with us. Matt, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Uh, so you got it right. I'm a writer. Um, I've written a couple books. I live in Waco, Texas, of all places. I'm currently working on a doctorate in Christian ethics, which the joke line is that means that I get to judge people in the name of Jesus. Uh, that's that's my specialty. Um, but it's only a joke, I assure you. I assure you. So I spend all my days right now tweeting about the demise of the religious right because of their alliance with Donald Trump, and
0: working on my dissertation in between those times. So it's, you know, it's a good life. Can't complain. That sounds like so stressful to me, but it is increasingly becoming my life as well. So I better buckle up. <laughs> That's right. Can you just tell us, give us some of your bona fides, the kind of dumb thing that academics do, like where have you been published, et cetera.
1: Yeah, so I the two books that I've written are lay level books. One was five years ago. A lay theology. level
0: means it's not scholarly; it's for regular readers. Correct? Uh,
1: that's right okay. for ordinary human beings. The only people who we probably should be writing for at the end of the day. So the first was a theology of the body for evangelicals that was called Earth and Vessels. The second was a book on uh, questioning. And specifically how questions work. And that's called The End of Our Exploring, a line from T.S. Eliot. Nice. I've got a few academic publications out there, but they're all very boring. Uh, my doctorate is through the most... Like I tried to avoid saying this, but you forced me into it. So yeah. this is on you, not me. But my doctorate is through Oxford University. So that's, that's like... drop.
0: The... <laughs> Actually, <Right>. don't <laughs> drop the mic. It will sound awful. Um, <laughs> nobody will get it. They don't have a visual. If you don't mind me asking... Who have you voted for in the last few elections for president?
1: Yeah, I don't mind you asking. I've in every election that I've been able to vote, uh, I voted for the Republican candidate. OK. Um, and so that was I think Bob Dole was the first one who I was able to vote for. And it's been a, a long string since then. I've got I'm an instinctive conservative. OK. Right? My con—my conservatism Kind of runs down into my very bones. I've I've just got deeply con- conservative intuitions and have always lined up best with the Republican Party. As a result, my parents were Republicans, very conservative people, and so I I don't know is it is it a disease? If it's a disease, I caught it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I've voted for Republicans the whole way through.
0: Okay, now in your own personal political calculus, just as a voter. How highly does the issue of abortion rank for you, among other issues?
1: Yeah, so I, I should say I'm 34, right? So I'm, I'm technically a millennial and yeah, I try
0: not to remind myself of that too often.
1: <laughs> I try to remind myself of that all the time because it means that people will still listen to me. Right. As oh, yeah, once you maybe. quit being the millennial, people are like, you actually have to know something. They won't just listen to you because you're young. And yeah. that's, that's the end of it.
0: An authentic voice from the millennial generation. <laughs> Here it is.
1: Here it is. No. So I'm a millennial and this the story of from millennials or about millennials for years was that we were sort of becoming more progressive and wanting to approach things very differently and there are some ways in which that's very true of me I in terms of how like pro life commitments rank for me it's 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 still number 1 okay. um, I'm I'm just like my parents in that respect it's 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 kind of a deal breaker if you're a candidate for office and I think there's a more than reasonable chance that you will vote for policies that I think will increase the number of abortions in this country. I just won't vote for you, regardless of how much I like the rest of your platform. Okay. Um, Yeah, that's good to know. And that's, you know, I think that's a pretty rare position for someone our age. Um, Yeah, but it's
0: very common for like our parents' age.
1: Yeah, very common for our parents' age. And And I try to say like, I'm not trying to be a unreflective and sort of stupid one issue voter. I'm trying to be a really reflective, very thoughtful one issue voter. <laughs> like I've I've worked a long time to to figure out what my commitments are on this issue and and to prioritize it appropriately. So, you know, we can talk about why I'm so committed to this, but yeah, that's that's and I recognize too like I get to be my, the cost that I pay for it is not what the cost that other people are going to pay because I'm a white male who will never have to make that decision. Yeah. And, you know, my wife and I are solidly middle class and will never have to make that decision uh, for lots of reasons. But, yeah. So I, I get that, you know, I'm, I'm the worst person in the world to have that sort of view, but I do.
0: Well, but you're the best person in the world for this podcast because the whole point here is. You are proving your bona fides as like a true (laughs) pro-lifer, and yet you're going to make the case against Donald Trump. And that alone is, depo- <laughs> is depolarizing for the rest of us. I think.
1: I'm like the one pro-lifer that all my pro-choice friends can talk to because at least I'm not like those pro-lifers, right? Well, I'm not, um, I'm
0: not here to label or judge anybody. I'm just trying to find good examples of people who can express themselves clearly. So, okay. For the sake of this discussion, we are going to assume a pro-life position. Cool with that? Yeah. So I'm not going to ask, you to argue for it. I think we may talk about that in the future, but for now, we're not arguing about that. But can yeah. you describe your actual pro-life position, the one that we will be assuming for this conversation? Just like give it to me as policy or something.
1: Yeah. So I I think it consists of three different planks, as it were. Okay. There's a there's a pro-fetus plank to it. I think that the fetus deserves protection. Okay. within the womb. Uh, I think it's a rights-bearing entity that deserves our respect. It's a pro-women support position. So I think that mothers who bear children deserve respect, support, help, and a pro-life position can't put the interests of the mother in at odds with the interests of the fetus we have to figure out a way in which those interests align and the pro fetus position is the pro woman position and vice versa Um, so can you give me
0: some policy examples of that second plank of your position what kind of policies do that
1: so i think things like paid leave for maternity right mandatory leave for women who are getting pregnant as a way of allowing them to gestate human life, to contribute to society by performing that distinctly and irreplaceably invaluable task for us. And society recognizing that and and acknowledging that and supporting them in that by helping pay their bills for some of that period. Um, I think that's one way in which the pro-life movement can uh, support women. And in a way that I think lots of people regardless of whether they have pro-life commitments should be interested in, right? Like yeah. if you if you are pro-choice and you think that it only matters, you know, that or, or that the the pregnancy is only sort of worth continuing if the woman chooses to continue it, you should still I think want to support something like fam- paid leave for for women who need it in order to go through that process. So there there are policies like that that I I think we can make progress on.
0: And then going back to your first plank, what are the policies for the pro fetus plank of the platform?
1: Yeah, so there I think we've got to have judicious and restrained prohibitions, right? They're almost always going to be prohibitions. There's going to be no like mandatory coercion upon women to become pregnant, right? Right. The yeah. question is, will there be limitations on what women can voluntarily do once pregnant? And there I think, yeah, there's there's no from my standpoint, judiciously limiting and prohibiting abortions is, I think, what we need to do. And, and, and there I have in mind things like penalties for abortion providers, not women, but but sort of outlawing restricting the actual delivery uh the supply side as it were yeah and that's that's highly controversial i i do think that some of the some of the laws that pro-lifers have pursued that have basically attacked women for negligence taking drugs or becoming drunk while uh, pregnant and damaging their fetus. Some of the, some of the laws that have held women accountable for those sorts of things, is way too invasive. That's way too far. It's not the right sort of yeah. measures that I think the pro-life movement should, should pursue. But yeah, I think, I, I do think that restricting access and availability is one of the most important planks of a pro-life uh, position.
0: Okay. So plank one is pro-fetus. Plank two yeah. is pro- Pregnant woman. And so you yeah. gave an example of a policy. And then what is plank three of the platform?
1: I think plank three is something like pro consensus. Okay. So over the long term in American society, if we're going to reach a point where abortions are rare, then we need to have. Uh, we need to generate consensus on this. We need to be able to get people convinced not just at the level where we've we've sort of had a 51% majority that allowed us to pass X law that we think is sufficient, but we actually need to spend the time deliberatively persuading people of our point of view and potentially withholding certain legislation. This is a really controversial thing to say within the pro-life movement, but potentially not pursuing certain forms of legislation until we have generated a sufficient level of consensus. Now where, what level of consensus is that something like a supermajority, 66%, 70% yeah. right, seems reasonable in, in a um, sense
0: of like, you know, 90% of polled Americans are in favor of universal background checks for gun control. You'd like to right. get it to the point uh, where 66 or 70% of Americans were in favor of, Making abortion largely illegal, and with it these other policies that uh, support the health and the financial situation of the mother and yada yada.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. And in order to win that consensus, you may have to be patient and allow a lot of what you would consider injustice. yeah, wow. to, to go on, right? That's like interesting. You, you can't you can't be in a hurry to win that sort of consensus. But I think that a consensus once won that way would endure far longer than change one through immediate means that, as we've seen, tend to engender backlashes and yeah. actually undo gains from from my point of view, pro-life gains, later on down the road. So- I mean, you could
0: argue this, that that has happened with homosexual marriage. It's not like the Obergefell Supreme Court decision happened and then everybody got in line, we basically have a supermajority in the United States that homosexuals should be able to be married. And then the Supreme Court decision followed.
1: Right. And that was preceded by you know, 20, 30 years of Republicans making, conservatives making some gains. So Mm. the Defense of Marriage Act, for instance, passed in the 90s, uh, signed into law by Bill Clinton, which the Windsor case overturned. You know, the Defense of Marriage Act was largely hailed as... A gain by conservatives, but it ended up being a loss. It generated a backlash right. and it destabilized, in one sense, the consensus that American society at one point had because. It was trying to stitch together a social fabric by way of legislation.
0: Man, and, that is and fascinating.
1: You just can't do that. The, the social fabric has to be knit together in such a way that legislation is a lagging indicator of it. That, that legislation is the sort of last thing if that legislation is going to endure and, and be stable within that community. And that just, that just means that everyone has to allow
0: injustices to, to go on. And so hard. that's an interesting argument. That's a legal sociological argument, but it yeah. also is a moral argument in your in that you're saying we need to respect the populace of our country and like convince them through non combative ways that we have a point. Is that part of what you're saying?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, people deserve respect. And because that's a sort of central plank for me, I think that they deserve reasons for our views and deserve a chance to be persuaded to see them. And that, that just means that in order to enact morals legislation, legislation that we think in one sense is tied to some conception of morality, that we have to get a sufficient number of people to uh, agree with that in order for it to be stable. And I think that's actually a kind of obligation on us as democratic citizens to, to do for one another. Wow. And I think that's, that's, that comes from every side. So, you know, that, that means that like bringing about legislation, bringing about legislative changes, uh, legal changes through the courts is, from my standpoint, the worst way to do it because so something like Roe versus Wade generated a huge backlash because it was an instantaneous decision uh, that the people didn't have deliberative representation over and that sort of social change is a shock to the system so uh, the consensus plank is aim for legislative change not judicial yeah. even if even if it takes a whole lot longer
0: wow that's interesting well those pro-choice listeners who were about to lose you during your policies of the <laughs> pro-fetus plank, I hope are at least still listening now that you have extended an, an olive branch, uh, so to speak. Okay, so that's your position. That's We're going to assume that for the sake yeah. of this argument that you're going to give as to why yeah. Trump is not a good fit. But before we get to Trump, who is obviously not a standard GOP candidate, (laughs) let's talk about the party platforms a little bit of the DNC and the GOP. So first question, has the current GOP platform changed much regarding either abortion or the types of policies that affect the number of abortions performed from pre-Trump to the current platform this year?
1: Yeah. So no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, great. We're just gonna we're just gonna move on. We're gonna move on. Okay, because I got a lot of questions. All right, so it's the same.
1: Republicans Republicans are generally useless when it comes to pro life causes. They've they, they've been not nearly as effective as pro-lifers certainly would want them to be, at least at the national level. Now, there have been lots of state-level changes, uh, state-level restrictions okay. that have gone on. And at that level, the Republican Party has been much more, uh, much much sort of friendlier to pro-lifers. But at the national level, there's there's been not very much progress at all.
0: You know, I want to ask you one question that just comes up here, and I think people would like to know this. Let's say you're, you live in Texas, okay? So yeah. let's say that your state legislature enacts a law that is pro fetus while not simultaneously enacting a law that is pro mother. Yeah. How do you view that just as an individual? Are you torn?
1: I'm, yeah, that's a good question. I think I'm conflicted. Okay. I'm glad that those protections would be put through. right? Like I, I think that that protects and preserves justice. It prevents people from doing things that I think are morally bad. Yeah. At the same time, I think, well, that's a, that's a very unstable way of bringing about that social change.
0: If, also, it doesn't move toward consensus because there it will be a backlash.
1: That's right. And so from my standpoint, it presumes a lot about the makeup of American society and the way in which we interact with each other that I deeply disagree with. Yeah. I mean it, it, And so from that standpoint, I think I'm really interested, I'm really interested in seeing abortion ended functionally in America. But I think in order to do that, both the Republican Party and pro lifers more broadly need to think in increments of 200, 300 years. Mm. And the psalmist, I'm a theologian, so I, I just, you know, apologies to those listeners who. No, it's fine. I'm going to, um, I already
0: gave a disclaimer that I recorded <laughs> <yeah>. later. <laughs> it will sound like I already gave one. I haven't recorded it yet, but you don't have to right. worry about that.
1: No, no. So the, um, you know, as a theologian, I think the. The psalmists really capture how I feel about abortion. The cries of how long, O oh Lord, how long? How long will you delay? How long will you sort of refrain from acting? And from my standpoint, the the witness of the pro-life movement needs to be a kind of lament in its sort of central core and in a, okay. a, a kind of patient endurance and a long suffering with those who are engaging in these acts and for the sake of long-term social change. I think those laments are ordered towards, they broaden our horizon so that we don't just look to which law can we get passed in the legislature. They look to how are we actually changing the social conditions in order to make sure that these laws actually just become functionally irrelevant.
0: So, okay, back to the platforms. Yeah. Thanks thanks for going on that detour with me. Sorry. No, that's, no, no, that was, that was my own question. I wanted to go there. So between the GOP platform, the party platform and the democratic party platform, as they're currently written, which of them would do more to reduce the overall number of abortions in the United States and why?
1: Yeah. So here I'm going to say something that will probably anger many of your democratic listeners. Okay. I, I, I do think the Republican platform would do more to reduce abortions in America. Why? In part because I am not convinced. So the argument on behalf of the Democrat platform, if I understand it, goes something like poverty relief reduces abortions. Poverty relief and increased access to contraception actually will re- is like the most significant thing that will reduce the number of abortions in America. And the Democrat Party platform, uh, you know, seeks to provide uh, health services for all women, including access to abortion and uh, so on and so forth.
0: I'm, I think you've not- got to, but just to jump in, yeah. you've got to include maternity leave, which is a plank of the platform since Bernie got his way.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, it's not clear to me how much that will do to actually reduce abortions. That's 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 an open question from my standpoint. Even if you include that, Brookings did a study that showed that upper middle class women, people who have an income uh, something like 400% over the poverty line, are far more likely to get abortions than those who are members of the lower class. Interesting. People who are below the, the, the poverty line. And what that indicates to me, no, no people who live below the poverty line are far less likely to use contraception, right? So they just
0: have their children more often.
1: They just have their children more often. They, they keep them. And there are lots of questions about why that is. You can say it's education, you know, access availability, obviously like it's, it's a medical procedure that costs money. And so, you know if, if you are living below the poverty line you may not have the money to yeah. get that procedure when you would want to otherwise but it is fascinating to to look at the statistics and i mean something like 52 i think the number is percent of abortions in in america are from middle class women and that indicates to me that poverty relief while i think it's enormously important is by no means the only thing that will reduce the abortion rate. I also just have real worries about this is also going to get me in all sorts of trouble.
0: Hey, it's just be Um, yourself, man. It's all good. (laughs) We can handle it.
1: I, I have real worries about the way in which contraception gets advocated for particularly as it gets tied to class. So increasing contraceptive use and long-term, long-acting, reversible contraceptives, LARCs, seems like those specifically are maybe the only form of contraception that actually reduce abortion rates. There's some evidence out there that other forms of contraceptive use do not reduce abortion rates because uh, people increase the amount of sex that they have. But long-acting reversible contraceptives, those seem to. There's there's been a couple studies. You mean like these, diaphragms? Yeah, that's right. Those seem to reduce abortion rates. And I guess I I worry that there's a there's a kind of classism that's built into that argument, where the problem is that people below the poverty line are having children, and that's that it just it just troubles me. I haven't quite put my finger on what troubles me about that, but there's something about that where I think, like, knowing lots of people who live below the poverty line and, and have children, I don't actually think that I would want them having fewer children. I think the children are are some of the things that have motivated some of my friends to become responsible individuals in ways that they were not
0: before. You're saying and, you're saying that you think there that they might be smacking a little bit of eugenics in the large, I mean, I, in the large scale.
1: I wasn't I wasn't going to say it, but we can with long acting reversible contraceptives specifically, we can functionally sterilize people, right? We can mm. and it's voluntary, right? We're not yeah. no one is no one is advocating for you know coercive measures anything sure. like that but within a social context this is this is really what starts to you start to question like what actually constitutes free choice right because if you're in a social context where you feel desperate where you feel like you have no other options and so on and so forth it may appear to you as though your only reasonable choice is a long acting reversible contraceptive and where the pressure all the social pressure, all the all the sort of institutions are steering you in that direction because there's a certain vision of the life that is is embedded within those institutions, and that that becomes a sort of functional sterilization program. That's like I temporary, don't think that's actually the case. Temporary, temporary sterilization, yeah, temporary, um, reversible. Importantly, right, but still kind of functional. And, you know, there's, from my standpoint, we just saw a major study come out that The Guardian wrote about um, from Sweden, I think it was, that very few people talked about, about the increased rates of depression among women who use contraception. We haven't been doing this sort of pervasive drug exposure for very long. And the question is, are there long term, long term? Ramifications for women's health that th- this sort of constant exposure to drugs provides. Here's all. Here's one thing that I know about our society: if people are worried about hormones in their beef, yeah, they should be worried about contraception.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I'm gonna have you send me uh, an article or two along those lines that we'll put up on the show notes people want to read more but suffice to say for for the current argument which it is taking us some time to get into but yeah sorry it's good no no no, it's good to lay the groundwork you are like a tried and true card-carrying pro-life conservative that has become abundantly clear <laughs> So let's get to Trump here. You wrote the following. I have heard every argument defending voting for him over the past six months. Can you give us a few of those arguments and why Um, you did not find them convincing?
1: You know, this is like asking me to revisit my nightmares, right? Um, <laughs>
0: well, I'm asking you, please. I've,
1: I've spent so much time this year arguing with people about this. It's really terrible. From the pro-life standpoint, the argument has been uh, the Supreme Court yeah. and judges. I mean, that's, that's like the holy grail of the pro-life movement. It is the sacred cow before which every pro-lifer is expected to bow and offer their, you know, worship and so on and so forth. And I, I just am not convinced that that is a healthy position for the pro-life movement to be in.
0: And you kind Uh, of explained that, right? With your three plank platform, that's only plank number one. And if we only do plank number one, there will be backlash. We're not creating consensus and we're not doing anything for the mothers.
1: Yep. That's right. And the, what happens with the court has, um, it's very hard to overturn opinions, clearly, yeah. right? Like it, it has a long lasting impact and I'm not sanguine about that. I don't think I'm naive about that. I also think that ultimately the court is going to have a reflective, it's going to reflect the society that that is it rules over. And from that standpoint, I think pro-lifers, need to recognize where our position is relative to the rest of the country. So there are a lot of aspects to it. That's that's but it is the hardest argument to make. It's the hardest argument to defend rather sort of not voting for Trump. I mean, you have to in order to buy that as a pro-lifer, you have to stake your claim on on the possibility that Donald Trump is going to like carry through his commitments and appoint Justices who would be pro-life. And that strikes me as ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous. Okay, give, me, give
0: us some reasons why that is ludicrous, that Trump would actually make good on his promise to appoint conservative justices.
1: Yeah, in part because I think while Donald Trump is running a populist campaign, he covets and craves the attention of his peers far more Hmm. then he craves the attention of the crowds. So I think the best. What are the, what's hypo-
0: the, yeah. What are the, what are examples of that?
1: Yeah. So I think the best hypothesis of why he's running is partly is, is, is that uh, he was mocked relentlessly at the white house's press corps dinner or whatever it was.
0: Yeah. The correspondence dinner,
1: the correspondence dinner. Thank you. And um, he was mocked relentlessly and Seems to have been so insulted that he started to take running seriously after that.
0: Yeah, he was he was mocked for his birtherism. Correct that he kept yeah. peddling.
1: It was it was everything. It was his birtherism. It was the fact that he had made noises about running so many times and hadn't run
0: like an those I are, dare you kind of a thing.
1: Yeah, sort of like an I dare you. And those are the those are the people that I think Trump really cares about at the end of the day when he's done. Yeah. If if he were to win. The presidency. The day after, he'd be a one-term president, and I don't think we have any doubt about that. Yeah. The day after he was done, he would go off to Mar-a-Lago, his resort, and invite his sort of friends from New York, who are all functionally Democrats. And he's going to spend the rest of his days hanging out with people who are not... Donald Trump voters.
0: And so he needs to act in such a way that his social circle will keep him in it. You're saying he has way more incentive to make his billionaire friends happy, who are mostly Democrats or his New York elites than he does to make his voters happy.
1: Yep. I think that's absolutely the case. And if you look at Donald Trump's whole life, he is a classic con man. I mean, it's perfect that he got involved in casinos. That's his game. He knows how to prey upon the hope and the aspirations of ordinary people. And he always wins at that game. And then he goes and does whatever he wants. And he's, he's running his campaign exactly like he would operate a casino. And the people who have bought into it are by and large people who would go to one of his casinos and spend their weekends engaging in the kind of entertainment on the off chance that they might strike it rich. And that's, you know, from my standpoint, like it's a con. And when he got into office, he would lose any pretenses because he wouldn't, there would be nothing controlling him. Mm. And he'd put up whoever he wanted to without caring.
0: So to wrap up on that, you just think the argument that he'll, appoint Supreme court justices that are pro-life friendly is a super flawed argument.
1: Yeah. I think it's, I think it's absolutely ridiculous.
0: I don't, and and that has been basically the only argument from the pro-life side for voting for him.
1: Yeah. It's hard to think of any others. I mean, some, some people have like tried to defend the need to support him because of democracy. You know, he was the people's choice in the Republican primary, and so in order to support the person, the people's choice in the Republican primary, we have to go with Donald Trump. And I I don't that doesn't move me at all. Yeah. So I will say as 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 hard as I've been on Trump, um, I do think that his voters have real concerns. And that's a whole separate show. But I I I wouldn't want I wouldn't want to my sort of deep rejection of Trump to come across as a rejection of Trump's voters or their concerns or their anxiety I think there's more to the, what they're what's motivating them than just racism and xenophobia. Yeah. Um, and I care about them and want them to be folded into American life in important ways. And so
0: so let's pivot here and why don't you make your argument? Now we've set the ground. We've we've laid it all out on the table. Present your case for why a pro-life Republican should avoid voting for Trump.
1: Yeah, so I think a pro life Republican should not vote for Donald Trump uh, for many reasons. The first of which would be that Donald Trump has clearly engaged in sexual behavior that we find morally wrong by and large, right? The number of divorces, the number of mistresses that he has bragged about, and now lots and lots of evidence of real sexual assault including his own personal testimony to it yeah. um all of that just makes me think like there is no way you can maintain the second plank of my pro-life position, right? The pro-women position. It's not just a pro-pregnant women position. It can't be, right? Right. It's got to be a pro-women position because women are valuable and they're valuable for more than just the fact that they are able to bear children. But that's also what contributes to their value. But it's got to be a pro-women position and you can't support as a a pro-life organization. I just don't think you can... Hitch your wagon to someone who has been as misogynistic and as morally depraved when it comes to women as Donald Trump. Not to have any credibility at ever saying that your view is for women's gut.
0: So to go back to your three principles, it's not pro-woman, it's anti-woman, and that also will hurt the consensus, which hurts the long-term goals of the pro-life movement.
1: Yep, that's right. I mean, the second major reason, I think, is it's, it's probably likely that Donald Trump has paid for abortions.
0: Yeah, what's the evidence for that?
1: There was an interview, I think I saw it in Slate, but it was from the 90s, where the interviewer asked him, straight up, have you ever paid for an abortion? Uh, and Donald Trump responded, that's a very interesting question. What are your other questions? Yeah,
0: he didn't deny it at all.
1: <laughs> no, that's right. And what we know about Donald Trump is he's willing to lie flagrantly. And if he hadn't, you know, it'd be a very easy lie for him to to make. But that he wasn't get, willing to go there makes me think he actually did it. So. so
0: let's say he becomes president and you are an operative for a pro-choice organization. And, oh, you're, man. and you have low scruples in the morning uh, or <laughs> in the moment. You're not feeling too scrupulous, and you just go, "Hey, let's find that evidence, and then oh. let's wag that in the face of America." You guys, you guys elected this guy, and he paid for multiple abortions in his life. How much does that set the movement back?
1: Enormously. So today is Tuesday, October 18th. So I'll just I'll just go on the record and say I will not at all be surprised if that evidence comes out before november 8th oh
0: before november 8th yeah
1: i would not at all be surprised if it came out like november 1st
0: hmm. and i don't was, know when this episode is airing but it is I know. the 18th right now <laughs> so you know
1: it is the 18th right now yeah. but you know i like i i really it would absolutely be the case that if he were president the pro-life movement would dig that up and and the reasonably so. Movement. or Yeah, excuse yeah. me, the pro choice movement would dig that up and and reasonably so and you wouldn't and even it. necessarily
0: begrudge them for that.
1: No. I'd want to know that as right. a pro-lifer. Okay. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. I I think it matters if we think that the behavior of our presidents matter at all, I think that would matter. I mean, I disagree with President Obama a lot. I think he's been one of the single best practical emissaries of a pro-life, pro-marriage view by virtue of his personal conduct while in office. Yeah. Right? Like, d- does Would anyone in this world believe that they might believe that President Obama was born in Kenya? But I, I actually doubt that most people would believe that he had an affair with someone. Because yeah. he, and, he and Michelle just seem so naturally happy. And I think that's so admirable. It's one of the things that gives me the most hope about American politics yeah. and and that I've loved the most over the past eight years. And, you know, f- to have Donald Trump in there, if that were to come out, I think it would be hugely damaging to the pro-life movement. I think it would set the pro-life movement back at least 50 years.
0: And just not to get too gruesome, but since you probably know the numbers, if that happened and it set the pro-life movement back 50 years, roughly how many abortions is that?
1: I can't even think about that.
0: Okay. That's just too dark.
1: It's just too dark from my standpoint. It just makes me want to start rage tweeting again.
0: Um, don't do it. You're on, don't do it. Stay with me, stay with me, Matt, stay with me, but
1: focus on my finger, focus on my finger. It's really bad. (laughs) It's really bad. It really just, I, it, it makes me rage against the dying of the pro-life movement. It's, it's awful.
0: Okay. Well, let's, let's back away from that. Minefield. So give us another argument or another part of your argument against Donald Trump in your, in your article about this, you mentioned something about the value of pro-life votes sort of on the market of politics. Can you, can you give us that argument?
1: Yeah. So that argument is something like, look, if I can't even say if anymore, because the pro-life movement has by and large institutionally, the, the political side of the movement has signed up with Trump because that has happened From this point on, forevermore, within American political life, the Republican Party will view the pro-life movement as willing to support their candidate, regardless of who they put up.
0: Because Trump has done the bare effing minimum. (laughs) Yeah, so any other candidate goes, dude, if they'll vote for Trump, I don't even have to throw them a bone. I don't have to that, do anything. That's right. That's
1: basically right. I mean, the it's a the- guaranteed
0: voting block for any GOP candidate. And in fact, they might as well court some pro-choice voters.
1: Yep. Because if, if the platform seems marginally better than the Democratic National Committee's platform, Pro-lifers will say, "Well, there, you know, we know what we're getting with the Democrats. There's a chance we'll get something better with the Republicans."
0: It has it, to be the 50 million or whatever easiest votes that anybody could ever secure in that case. Yeah, 30 million or however many that is.
1: Pro-lifers have become the cheapest date in politics. Yeah, and that isn't a way to build political influence over the long term you have to be able to say here's what my vote's going to cost and extract real costs from people and to say and that means you've got to be willing to lose certain battles and say like look this matters so much to us you guys don't get it that we are actually willing to lose the supreme court because you guys screwed this up so badly like if that's really the card that is going to get played if that's the i hate this we've it's sad that this <laughs> phrase is ruined. If that's the Trump card, Trump card, I know I keep um, using it too. It's terrible. Uh, but if the Supreme court is the Trump card, then you have to hold on to the Trump card. Like you can't play it on someone like Donald Trump. You got to be yeah. able to to play that card for a candidate who can really do something about it and pro-lifers gave it away. And so their, their, their political influence is uh,
0: waning. So an example of a voting block who's Influence is very high right now. The value of, say, people wanting a $15 minimum wage, that yeah. those are valuable votes right now because Hillary basically had to go from $12 to $15 to get Bernie supporters. Yep, she had to go right. – people who want state-sponsored college for people under $100,000 a year, that's a valuable voting block right now. Yep. She
1: really needed those voters. And, um, you know, the Bernie campaign was willing to extract real concessions because Bernie is a real politician. He knows how this goes. The pro-life movement. God bless them. Love them. I hope I still have friends within the political movement. After this podcast. After this podcast, (laughs) that's right. It's largely staffed by non-politicians, right? It's largely staffed by people who are so earnestly devoted to the cause that they don't have, from my standpoint, the kind of political judgment that a movement really needs. Well, Um, and
0: that was in this recent Washington Post article I saw about how we are becoming more polarized. And there was a huge study done about this at Princeton or Harvard or somewhere. And one of the, the number one reason they concluded, and there are multiple reasons contributing to that polarization, but I believe the number one is the rise of activism within political parties. Yeah. And that an activist has different aims than a candidate does or an elected official has.
1: Right. And an activist has the luxury of not having to make any compromises, right? right? Whereas if you're a politician and you want to get things done, you've got to sit in a smoke-filled room and talk with those people across the aisle whose votes you need to try to get something done. I mean, I think Jonathan Rauch's uh, article in The Atlantic over the summer, How American Politics Went Insane, is a terrific examination of the sort of polarization that we we have now and what he points out is like the political parties have actually lost power they've lost sort of leverage over their candidates and as a result they've lost the ability to broker deals with the other side Um, we don't have the mechanisms to allow politicians to speak together and and so that's it's a huge problem but the pro-life movement you know it doesn't doesn't have many politicians in its ranks it's got it's got a lot of earnestly devoted good-hearted people
0: well and that's actually true on the left as well it's true of environmental yeah. activism and it, it's pushed both activists have pushed both parties leftward and rightward now i want to detour for a second this was a question that i got from facebook when i mentioned i was going to be interviewing you Uh-oh. and basically the question is how did we get here how did we get to a point where pro-life and GOP were so intertwined. I, I mean, we could do probably 30 minutes on this, but if you could just give us a summary, that'd be great.
1: Yeah. So the best the best book to read on this is uh, by Ramesh Panaru. Punch- I don't know, man.
0: He That sounds like an immigrant. Kind of <laughs> um,
1: can't trust him. Can't trust anything they say. He's got a book called The Party of Death, I think it is, that walks through the history of abortion in and uh, abortion legislation and abortion politics. It's been years since I've read it. I mean, Roe versus Wade did a lot, right? That polarizes yeah. American society. You see a huge fracture at that point. The pro-life movement was predominantly Catholic in its beginnings. Um, and institution like Christianity Today, which is... You know central bastion of evangelicalism was was generally pro-choice and it wasn't really until the late 70s that mm-hmm. the evangelicals uh, started sort of signing on to the pro-life movement and some of that was Francis Schaefer. Um, Francis okay. Schaefer got really involved, uh, wrote some things that were really influential and then Reagan came along and courted, Evangelicals and that, that cemented the marriage. Uh, Reagan is the first one. And Reagan, you know, he, a lot of people say, like, oh, he doesn't really do anything for the pro-life cause. Not necessarily true. I mean, he appoints C. Francis Coop as, um, I'm forgetting the title all of a sudden, the main health officer of the United States. And C. Francis Coop is, you know, pro-life hero, like very pro-life, very good medical person, and so on and so forth. So so Reagan did more on the pro-life side than some critics of the alliance between uh, Republicans and uh, the pro-life movement would say. But I mean, like, I think it was 92 when Bob Casey from Pennsylvania, center from Pennsylvania, was running for president, came in second or third, and was denied a speaking slot at the Democratic National Convention. Because of his pro-life views. Oh wow! And that was that was a real break. That was a real sign that the Democrats institutionally were no longer a friendly place for those with pro-life commitments, and they haven't been since since at least that. Since then, yeah. I I actually would love I would love and pray for a really robust really strong pro-life Democrat contingent because I think it's one of the central things that we need for the sort of dialogue to happen at the national level appropriately. The problem is that the uh, Democrat Party institutionally is so inhospitable to that. And a huge part of that is Planned Parenthood funds Democratic candidates like crazy. They fund 99% to 1%. Democrats versus Republican they're a huge a huge Democrat donor and they have massive clout within the party so it's it's an unhappy alliance it's not the sort of alliance that I uh, think is an ideal situation but I but I understand why it exists and it's it's really tragic
0: so you've given us three separate arguments against Trump from a pro-lifer. You got a fourth one that I pulled out of your article. I'm going to quote something here, and then I'd like you to elaborate on it. Kent, is that all right? Yeah. Okay, you write, If abortions happen because of the breakdown of marriage, then there's nothing pro-life about electing someone who is at best a serial monogamist. If the abortion culture has anything to do with the wider degradation of our society's sex and morals, as pro-lifers have argued it does for as long as I've been alive— then there's nothing pro-life in endorsing a candidate who has bragged about the number of his sexual partners. So that's a great quote. Can you give us more on that?
1: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, The pro-life view is widely misunderstood to be limited to a view about what is permissible in the sphere of killing when it comes to the fetus, right? Whether or not it's permissible to kill the fetus. Pro-life view, I think has to take into account the causes which bring people to the point where they're willing to consider taking that step. And those causes include intimate personal relationships. So marriage is structurally linked, I think to procreation to having babies first comes marriage. uh, Then comes the baby and the baby carriage. Yeah. The breakdown in marriage has gone, that we've seen in an American society, has gone hand in hand with the acceptance of abortion. Okay, well, I gotta
0: stop you. You gotta give me some evidence for that, because I think there are some people who will brush back against that. So what is the evidence that acceptance of abortion and decline of, of you know, successful marriage rates are linked?
1: Well, it's, it's, it's a fair question. They've happened concurrently. I think there are they are linked. It's harder okay. to demonstrate
0: those links empirically. There, you don't know if it's co- if the correlation is causation necessarily. That's right.
1: That's right. I have I have philosophical reasons. I think why I would want to say that the correlation is causation.
0: Well, let's hear let's hear one of those reasons.
1: Yeah. So I think the Roe versus Wade and the permissibility of abortion that uh, was widely accepted post that decision changes the meaning of the child within the home, right? The child becomes functionally that which is chosen and not that which is received or given, even if one didn't choose it.
0: Interesting. So that also plays along with like just the increased role of consumerism in American family life as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. So there's an economic dimension to it, um, which is why, you know, like, the pro-life or the excuse me the pro-choice movement has such the the money is a huge part of it right Mm -hmm. and most of and most of the arguments about the need for access to abortion have to do with the economic status of the people pursuing them right these people are below the poverty line and it's bad to be below the poverty line and trust me I'm not saying that it's good to be poor but I think it's possible for poor people to have healthy marriages and to have dignity and agency. And if, if what the child is is a sort of object that is chosen within the home, if the child relates to the parents based on whether or not the parents wanted that child, I think it actually makes the child sort of contingent. It's the child becomes uh, uh, conditional. As it were. Right. Like one of the things about a pro-life position, if you think that abortion is impermissible, one of the things that you have to think is that unintended pregnancies are welcome.
0: Yeah. You have to say that. Right.
1: Right. You have to say, like, there's a good here that has gone on. Now, it's possible to, I think, avoid pregnancy responsibly. Yeah, Uh, I, I think it's possible and it's and it's indeed potentially obligatory in some cases to not get pregnant. What those cases are is really hard to identify, really, really hard to identify. But once the pregnancy begins, if you're a pro life, pro lifer, you're like, you just say that this is actually a good thing that has come and that has to shape everything else. And so that fact, that willingness to accept this possibility unconditionally changes the way in which family life gets arranged right like it changes it means that the relations between parents and children are held together by something beyond the parents choice they're held Mm. together by some kind of necessity some some kind of by the fact that this human being showed up and you didn't have a choice in the matter and that's, that's actually, like, you can look at that and say, that's terrible. Or you can look at that and say, if the universe is ordered, this is where I'm just going to say something theological again. Sure. If the if the universe is ordered in such a way that it's ordered towards goodness, ultimately, then it becomes really reasonable to think that the things that happen naturally, the things that we don't choose are, in fact, in some ways, good. Some of them, right? Yeah. So there's there's lots of ways in which I think the pro-choice movement has helped reshape how we think of the family it's helped reshape how we think of even the relationships between men and women within the home and it's i think easier for people to yeah i don't know what to say it's hard i mean these are hard
0: yeah yeah no it's it is hard. I mean, you know, uh, one thing that I have read or heard before is that one of the practical consequences of the women's liberation movement has actually been to liberate men sexually, to have sex with as many different women as they want, and to not have to worry about fathering children because of contraception and abortion. That's and right. I'm not. I'm not making an argument around that. I, I'm just saying it is interesting to consider that is also one of the consequences of the women's lib movement. Yeah. I'm all for women's liberation. I'm, but it's interesting. The There are just causes and effects when things change in big waves throughout an entire society. That's
1: right. And it's very hard to know in advance what those effects will be. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard to sit down and sort of list out. Yeah. Here's what I think is really going to change if we change this, this sort of arrangement, but you're right. I mean, the fact that abortion is available means that one form of the consequences of sexuality is no longer a necessary form yeah. for men, right? And men can if they have the funds pay for women to get uh, to exonerate them from the burden of caring for that child. And there are all sorts of difficult questions about what happens if, you know, the male and female disagree. About whether or not to get an abortion, right? right. What, who's if a if a woman wants to keep the child, but the husband doesn't, or, or excuse me, the man if they're not married doesn't, should the man be obligated to pay child support?
0: Oh, that's Why? a tough question?
1: Right? Why it's it's really hard question. If you think that the grounds for that support is voluntary, right? If it's a matter of the will, if it's a matter I see of decision,
0: what you're getting back to
1: yeah, right? Then if a guy says, look, I, I'm i all for the abortion. If you are going to do this, you're going to have to do this on your own, right? But But it's really hard for those who care about single women to agree with that because we still have this sense that if men help create a baby, they should be responsible t- to it and for it, even if it's... They don't want to, right? Like, there's some. So you're saying there's a conversation
0: that has to happen at kind of a more abstract ethical level of what is the grounding for the value of a child? Is it just? Is it only valuable when one or both of its parents want it to be there? Does it have its own independent value? And I think that your argument is if it has its own independent value, a lot of these sticky ethical questions become simpler.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and I think the, it's very hard to figure out how the dynamics of the family change once you take that view. But I think the vi- dynamics of the family do change, right? Because certain certain relationships that you don't have a choice over become distinctively valuable. Why do we care about sibling relationships? Who cares, right? The only reason that I have to deal with these siblings is because we were born to the same mother and father. Well, why is that significant, Right? I, doesn't, I should be able to sort of break those sibling ties to ignore them altogether to go on my way. We don't do that. And we generally think that sibling ties are valuable in part because we didn't choose them.
0: Okay, moving away from Trump and, and getting off of that rabbit trail, which I found tremendously interesting, I will say. Let's talk about a Christian after the circus of this election. Who cares about pro-life? Can a thoughtful Christian still trust James Dobson, Wayne Grudem, Eric Metaxas, or have those men proven that they have lost touch with clear thinking or even like a robust personal character? What What, what is a thinking Christian to do, especially a pro-life one?
1: Man, you're really trying to get me in trouble, aren't you? I uh... You don't have to name anybody. I mean, that's fine. I mean, <laughs> w- let's just... You- <laughs> no, no, it's it's fine. I've 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 already gone on the record saying that um, I was quoted in the New York Times saying that I didn't trust Tony Perkins' judgment any longer.
0: Well, can you give us a little background on that, please?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Tony Perkins has been one of Trump's sort of pro-life supporters, pro-marriage, pro-family supporters, and you know, my general take is if you supported Donald Trump institutionally. Right. Like if you're the head of an institution that claims to be supporting and promoting the family and life, if that was your role and you went and carried water for Donald Trump, I don't trust your judgment. I don't. I'm not ever going to give you my money. No one's ever going to invite me to speak at their conferences, but I wouldn't. Or if I did, I would tell them exactly what I thought about the world. So I don't I don't trust I don't trust his judgment. I don't trust the judgment of I mean all named names, Jerry Falwell, Eric Metaxas. That whole clan, that group who has been out there defending Donald Trump on these sorts of things. From my standpoint, they just it's 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 the worst unforced error that I've ever seen in my life when it comes to representing the sort of values that we actually care about. And it's so, the thing that bothers me is it's so deeply unimaginative. It refuses to step back for just like a half second and think, maybe, maybe, maybe we could reconfigure this movement in such a way that we weren't as dependent upon the Republican Party to advance our aims and we established power and, and sought social change through other mechanisms over the longer term. The pro-life movement is just deeply unimaginative. At least those, the legacy pro-life movement is. Um, And, you know, from that standpoint, I just think it's, I don't, I don't trust their judgment. So what am I going to do? I don't know. Probably, probably not be invited to anybody's conferences and <laughs> you know, keep Twitter ranting about things. But do Is we that... need
0: new leaders? I mean, do we need new people to step into that role?
1: Yes. I think everyone in America, whether they're pro-life or not, should be cheering some of the new leaders that have already arisen.
0: Give us a few people that those who are interested in a new take on this issue that they could look up.
1: Yeah, so I'm not going to name names there. Uh, I will just point people to uh, a piece in Slate that Ruth Graham wrote.
0: Yeah, I read that piece.
1: Um, on the, the sort of next generation of pr- the pro-life movement. Um, and she named all the names. It was it was a really good piece and really encouraging. Described some of them who are atheists, uh, some of them who are sort of more secular. Yeah. All of whom are very young. You know, I've got my disagreements with some of them, but... They're on the side of the angels from my standpoint.
0: We're going to link to that uh, article in the show notes uh, at depolarizedpodcast.com. So you can go get a link there.
1: Yeah. So someone like, you know, Amy Murphy, uh, who she mentions. Uh, one of, Yeah, one she's
0: going to be on this Podcast in like a couple months, I think.
1: Oh, good. What other quote in that piece. There's a little bit of truth to the old pro choice saying that the movement is a bunch of old conservative white men. Yeah, uh, I just thought like, I, that's that's more generous. There's there's a more than a little bit of truth to that. Oh yeah. Um, now there, I have. I mean, the head of Susan B. Anthony list is Marjorie Danis, Danis Felder. Danisfelder. Uh, as a woman. So there are women leaders out there, but yeah, the next generation, I th- I think it's much more sort of energetic, open to talking, interested in long-term social change than I think the previous generation has been. And that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah.
0: So, okay. One thing that I like to do to close out these interviews is I like to try and practice with my guests, giving the other side the benefit of the doubt or coming up with their best argument. So, if you are willing to do this, yeah, what good points? What are the best arguments from the pro-choice side in terms of the various platform planks that they are arguing for?
1: Yeah, I think starting with, I love this. I love that you asked that. I think it's um, hugely important to uh, listen. To the best of the arguments and it's an act of charity to improve the arguments of those we disagree with when we can.
0: Something I learned in philosophy class.
1: That's right. That's right. One, one thing that I've really appreciated uh, about sort of listening to some of my pro-choice friends is just the strangeness of pregnancy and the strangeness of the fetus in the pregnant condition right? Like in the womb, it's very easy for pro-lifers to do these, to sort of have an approach to the fetus that says, well, look, it's a human being, you know, there's, there's life. It began at conception. It's independent. It's sort of got its own directedness. It's clearly not a part of the mother and so on and so forth. And it deserves all the rights and, and privileges that we who are walking about deserve.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think what that misses is that it's very strange to be a fetus. That is very much unlike being a human being yeah. in 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 the like in the walking around sense, right? You're wholly dependent upon just one other being yeah. for your sustenance. You have no first person point of view. You have no consciousness. You have no like sort of sensory experience. Um, there's nothing like that.
0: So you're saying there's like a, there's a default strangeness for some people when they hear treat a fetus the exact same way you would treat a fully grown adult person. Yeah. It seems like a weird argument just, just on its face value.
1: Just on the face of it. If you really sort of step back and think about what we're saying, it seems really bizarre, right? This, I mean, the human being is totally invisible. To any of us in those yeah. early stages, right? Hidden entirely by the mother accessible only through the mother. Right. And so like fathers have a very different relationship to the fetus than mothers do obviously. Yeah. And that's hugely significant. And so I, I think that it's weird to be a fetus. It's weird. It's, it's bizarre that we come into the world in this way. And when people talk about, you know, like it's, why do you care so much about this clump of cells? I think that's a, that's a really, it's a really fair question. It's a really fair question. And if pro-lifers don't appreciate the strangeness of the things that we're saying, I actually think that we don't resonate with those that we're talking to.
0: Well, and there's like, like an example of that is, you know, I know a woman who had a pregnancy in her tube and that will kill her. And so they have to surgically remove it. Yeah. Now and that at the time of her surgery, it was like seven weeks old or something like that. Yeah. There's but there's no choice, there's no option there. You have to remove it. It cannot come to term. It will kill the mother. What rights did that seven month old fetus have? Partially formed. I mean, if you deny that that's a sticky question, then you're not gonna get any converts, right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah, it's 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 just bizarre. The whole thing is re- it's a really bizarre phenomenon, yeah. and I I want all of us to feel the weight of that bizarreness because my my thought is, I mean, we'll we'll begin to value the women who undergo it more if mm-hmm. we feel how bizarre that is because it demonstrates really clearly that women have a disproportionate burden in bringing human life into the world. I mean. I will never have to carry a human being inside of me yeah. f- for 9 months. And my role in the process is, you know, pleasurable and very short relative yeah, to the, relative Ew. to relative to the <laughs> 9 months. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the uh, you know, and so I the the pro-choice position of Advancing women's rights and presenting the strangeness of the burden that women are expected to care, carry. I think, like, yeah, I, I, I get, I get why, I really get why people take that sort of uh, point of view, and I mean. I'm I'm not a very good. There are there are also just a lot of really sophisticated pro-choice philosophers out there who I really respect. Someone like Jeff McMahon is a really smart guy. Mm. Uh, there's there's a a young legal theorist, Kate Griesley, who's got a book coming out on abortion um, that's really careful, really good, really sophisticated. And so I have, I have a lot of respect for those who are making the arguments. They're very 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 smart people um, i'm going even me.
0: i'm going to force you i 'm going to force your hand here and you're going to actually send me a couple articles by smart pro choice people and i'm going to include them in the show notes as well I will be happily doing We are going to respect the other side so thoroughly that we 're going to do that yeah. well matthew slash Matt thank you so much for your time, dude. This was a great yeah. conversation. I loved it. I hope that it was helpful for listeners. Where can people find you if they want to keep interacting?
1: Yeah, so the easiest place is probably Twitter. I'm on Twitter at, at Matt Lee Anderson. Um, I'm on Facebook as well. I'm probably probably on Facebook more than I am on Twitter. Uh, I think it's facebook.com slash Matthew Lee Anderson. I also write both on my sort of Medium page. Medium is a thing now that I'm doing, apparently. Cool. Uh, so I do that. And then mirror orthodoxy.com is where I also make appearances. Uh, but if you follow me on Twitter, I'll annoy you so much within the first week that you'll give up and, and go away. So it'll
0: be plenty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, dude, thanks for being here. And, uh, I have a sneaking suspicion we'll talk more in the future.
1: I hope so. Thank you for having me on Dan. Thank you for the terrific questions and for the work you're doing. I wish I really do hope that sometime when you have me on, you'll have someone who also like really disagrees with me and we can, and we can talk about these things in person. That would be just a ton of fun. Yeah, I we'll love, see.
0: I'm I'm not moving primarily towards the debate format, but I'm open to it. And so yeah, we, I don't, we might do that.
1: no, no, I, I don't want the debate. I just, right, I, just discussion. I love, I love the dialogue and I love hearing I love hearing all the arguments and thinking through things with people. So thanks. Thanks. For, it's a real social good that you are providing. So thanks for having me. Okay. On let stop me be a part it.
0: of it. <laughs> all right, man. See ya. All right. Man, I am blown away by how good that conversation was. I hope you guys agree. There's going to be a bunch of articles on the show notes, including some articles written by Matthew, as well as many of the ones we mentioned while we were talking, go to depolarizedpodcast.com to find those notes. Please check out our previous episodes if you're new. We do kind of a similar thing here that we did this week. You can find me on Twitter at Dan K-O-C-H. You can join our depolarized Podcast discussion group on Facebook and ask follow-up questions, you can email me at depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com. All of those are available. And if you're feeling particularly generous and you happen to work in the advertising industry, you can hire me or license some of my music at dancoke.net. That's how I pay for my life and how I can afford to do this podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm just excited to do another episode in another week. Thanks for hanging in there with me.